want to start off this morning by asking you a question. How many of you recently have found yourself looking around and thinking something like, people today are crazier than ever before? Who's thought that sometime recently? Now, whether it's because of politics or just the LifePoint staff that you've gotten to know or whatever it may be that's made you feel that way, I just have seen on social media people saying things like, man, can we just approach our lives like an iPhone and just turn it off and reboot it and see if things get better? Life is crazy today. And as I look around, I think there's just a lot of people that aren't really thinking about the consequences of their actions, of what they say or do and how that might affect other people. And they just go and do crazy stuff. They don't think about how it might lead to death or crazy injuries, all, all that kind of stuff. Recently, I was reading about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Will Smith just turned 50, which is crazy in itself to think about him back in that show. And he's 50 now. And he decided for his birthday this year, he wanted to overcome a fear. So here's what he did. He got on a helicopter, he flew over the Grand Canyon, and he bungee jumped out of that helicopter over the Grand Canyon. I mean, that is crazy, right? Ridiculous. Well, I don't know about you, but I think there's a lot of risk takers these days. And when we think about maybe the greatest risk taker, maybe someone that just defied death as much as anyone else, I know one name that I think comes to mind for a lot of us is Evil Knievel. That guy was crazy, and he did some of the weirdest and wildest and unbelievable things with his motorcycle and some of the jumps, and some of them were amazing, but he also fell short quite a few times. It was thought that over his lifetime as a stunt rider, he had over 433 bone fractures. The guy literally almost broke every bone in his body. And someone asked him once, how do you handle dealing with the potential of death? in the stunts you're about to do. And here's what he said. I thought it was interesting. He says, we have very little choice about our life. The only thing really left to us is a choice about our death. And he has the cameraman pan over to the Grand Canyon. He's about to jump over a part of it. And he says, my death is gonna be glorious. That was his mentality. He was kind of that ultimate go big or go home kind of guy. And what's crazy is he never actually died on any of his stunts. He had a lot of injuries, but he never died. But death did eventually catch up to him. At the age of 69, he died a very unspectacular death. He died of pulmonary disease. And he was one of those guys that I think just didn't think about death because it would have made him mess up or screw up even more. And so I think for us, even the craziest risk takers in the world, when they're faced with death, when they maybe have a friend or someone close to them that they love that, that passes away, when they're faced with that, they can get stuck. They may feel helpless. They have to kind of hit pause on their crazy lives and face death for a moment. And I think for many of us, when we think about death, what, what do you do? What happens when you think about death? Do you, do you get a little nervous? Does your pulse race a little bit? Is that something that you fear and that can sometimes make you feel stuck? I think when you think of death and the pain of loss, it can silence even the greatest of us and make us feel stuck. And so as we wrap up this stuck series today, we're going to be taking death head on, talking about how we fear it, how we can get stuck within it. 
And in those moments of pain or loss, sometimes the emotions take over and it makes us ask questions. Questions like, God, why? Why did that happen to this person? Or maybe we take one of the oldest questions of all time and we start taking on what happens after death. And that's a question that a lot of people ponder but need answers to. And I think at the end of the day, when we are facing death, it should remind us of our need for a savior. It should remind us that we need someone to give us answers in those hard moments in our lives. We need someone to set us free from death. And so in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus shows us how to face death without fearing the reaper anymore. He doesn't want death to make us afraid. He doesn't want us to be something that makes us feel stuck. And so what we'll see in this passage is how we can truly be set free from death. So I want to give you a real quick overview of where we're headed today. So John 11, there's a lot going on. So we're going to hit a few key verses. But first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to see Martha. We're going to see how someone responds in the midst of losing someone very close to them. How does that person deal with that? How can we handle the pain and suffering in our life? Then secondly, we're gonna see Jesus do something that is hard. He's gonna enter into a situation where a lot of people are suffering and grieving, and he's gonna be a model for us of how to handle that situation, how to come alongside of people in that. Along the way, we're gonna learn a lot about who Jesus is. Really cool stuff. And then we're gonna wrap it up by seeing that not only was Jesus able to bring someone back from the dead in Lazarus, but how he can also model for us how to truly live. That's where we're headed today. And if you ask me, John 11 would make an amazing movie. I mean, you've got emotion, you've got drama, you have action. It's basically like the Bible's version of the movie Gladiator. I mean, they're basically the same thing, right? And if you think about it, Jesus is way cooler than Russell Crowe, amen? He's pretty awesome. And he's gonna show us some really cool things in this passage. So let's dig in together and deal with death head on. Uh, we're gonna start by learning how we can respond when faced with the death of a loved one. All right, so let's dig in in verse 20. Or sorry, I'm gonna give you a, a few details here before we get into verse 21 that are important, I think, in understanding what's going on here. So the first 20 verses, here's what happens. You have three main characters other than Jesus. So you have Mary and Martha who, and their brother Lazarus. Now, what we know is that Lazarus was very sick. So Jesus catches wind of that. And by the time Jesus gets to Bethany, where Lazarus and Mary and Martha are, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. So that's part of the background. And when Jesus arrives, there is a big scene going on. I mean, there is a lot of grieving. They don't just do like a little one-hour funeral back then. I mean, it is like week-long thing of just grieving and mourning together and processing what's happened. And here's a couple things that were unique to that culture. First of all, they had a lot of musicians that were a part of this whole experience. And then they also had what were called professional mourners. So these are literally people that were basically paid to go there and just walk around and cry and wail. And I think that was kind of their culture's way of being like, it's okay to cry. And they kind of acknowledged and respected the loss of that great person that passed. And so when I was thinking about this, it's kind of like in our culture, if we were able to go back there, it's kind of like they grabbed like the Sarah McLaughlin's and Sinead Connors of the world. And that was the music. They're just making the saddest music you can possibly think of, 
all right, and just building this experience. And then the people that were the professional mourners, these are like the people that we would have chosen first to be on the reality show, right? I mean, they are drama central, and now they're paid to wail and show that drama and have a meaning and purpose behind it. So that's what Jesus walks into in this passage. And in the midst of it, what it tells us about Lazarus and Mary and Martha is these were people that were Jesus's friends. He loved them. There's three different verses in this chapter that remind us of how much he loved Lazarus and his sisters. So that's where we're gonna start. Let's look at verse 21 together. You should be able to see it on your screen or pull it up in your Bible. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So let's unpack this a little bit. So Martha is running, literally running to Jesus when she finds out he's on his way. And so she meets him as soon as he arrives. And she does something that I think is very common for a lot of us when we face grief. She actually starts their conversation with blame. She's like, Jesus, why weren't you here a few days ago, man? She knows that he can heal people. She doesn't understand why he wasn't there and healed her brother, Lazarus, before he died. And so when you think about it, when you've encountered loss, when you've lost someone, how do you handle it? What's the first thing that you've done? I think for a lot of people, the first thing is sometimes frustration or anger. Or for many of us, that can turn into blame. Sometimes we blame ourselves. Sometimes we blame others. It's kind of like, why couldn't I have done this? Or why weren't you there? How do we not stop this? Very normal process for a lot of people to go through in grief. And the thing about blame is that it prevents us from seeing the big picture. It blinds us to it. And so it keeps us from healing. It keeps us from going through the rest of the grieving process because the thought process comes always back to us or the people that we're blaming and it prevents us from seeing what's really going on and how we can overcome it. So what's really powerful here is we see Martha do this very human thing. She blames. And I imagine just as she's running to Jesus, what I can tell from this passage is she's kind of grieved already. She's dealt with it. She's accepted that her brother's died, but she knows he's gonna go to heaven. So she has a little bit of a sense of peace or hope about it. But this is kind of that one nagging question that's left. So she just puts it out there. Oh, Jesus, why weren't you there? But then what's powerful is she quickly moves on. In the rest of this passage, as soon as she sees Jesus, she starts to worship. She begins to believe. She begins to talk about the power of God. And she knows in the midst of this horrific time of loss in her life, what she needs more than anything is to be with Jesus. So she ran to him. I think that's an incredible example for the rest of us. And Martha, Martha, I believe at this point, has kind of gotten to that point of acceptance, which is the last stage of grieving for most of us. She recognizes what happened and she's just kind of expecting, well, he's gonna be in heaven someday. But Jesus has a surprise for her and for us. So in verse 25, Jesus says, one of the more powerful passages in this section. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? Incredible passage. Jesus in this moment 
is saying he's two things. He's both the resurrection and the life. He is capable of bringing people out of death. But he's also capable of modeling for us how to truly live. He is both. Being a Christian isn't just about getting into heaven. It's also about living the best we possibly can now through Christ. And that's what he's reminding us of here. And it's powerful. He's reminding us that death is, is kind of like a shadow that we pass through as our body expires and we begin eternity with Christ. He reminds Martha that he not only can help people when they die to be resurrected, but he has the power to change our current lives as well. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, Martha, look, I know Lazarus seems to be dead now. He is, but he's gonna live literally in minutes or moments. And just like him, he says to Martha, but you, someday you're gonna die, but you're not really gonna die because you know me, you're gonna live. And you'll never experience separation from me. I will be with you always. You have no reason to accept death because I will conquer it for you. That's what Jesus does for Martha. That's what Jesus does for us. And Martha's response here is just an incredible model for us of how to respond when life hits the fan, when it gets really hard. Here's what she says in verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming to the world. So Jesus asked, do you believe? And she says, yes, and lets him know exactly who he is. He is her Lord and her savior. He's not just some amazing guy and some amazing friend, although he is those things. He's more than that. And I wanna ask you today, in the hardest moments in your life, in your deepest pain, deepest suffering, the hardest losses you've known, how are you believing in Jesus? How are you journeying that pain along with him? In those moments, we can turn to a lot of things, but trusting and leaning on Jesus is what our soul really needs. There was this amazing mathematician and physicist named Blaise Pascal. And he spoke about this idea. He said that there's this God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every human. And we try to fill it with created things, but the only thing that we can fill that hole with is God through Christ Jesus. And it's this idea that when we go through hard things, I think that hole in our hearts that Blaise is talking about, it gets even bigger. Pain and suffering just kind of opens us up. And we try to fill that hole with so many things. For some of us, maybe we start by filling it with busyness, just anything that would get our mind off of it. Maybe we fill it with things that bring us comfort. It could be food, it could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be just relationships that don't mean anything to us, but try to fill that void. For some of us, we fill it with things that can be good, things like books or movies, anything, music that distracts us and helps us to not focus on our pain. But no matter what we try to fill it with, if it's not Christ, then we're always gonna feel like we're missing something. And Jesus wants us to come to him just like Martha did, to run to him and just be with him. That's how we fill that void. With spending time with Jesus, with reading his word, with prayer, with coming to church, with being with amazing Christians and community here together that can journey that with us. That is what fills that void. And we have to remember in the midst of all the pain, God is sovereign. Somehow, though we don't always see it, he is in control. He's working in the background and he is working for the good of those who love him. He just tends to 
take a little longer than we'd like most of the time. But the cool thing is when it takes longer, usually it means we're able to grow more. We're able to look back and see that, but we just got to hang in there and keep trying to connect with God in the midst of it all. Before we look at the next few verses, I want to ask you to, to this. Have you ever tried to be there for someone that's grieving the loss of a loved one and maybe just felt like you have a loss of words? You just want to help, but you don't know what to do. Who's been there before? Who's experienced that? I know for me, I have a MDiv and pastoral counseling, and I've done quite a bit of hospital visits and funerals, and I still have found many situations where I'm just at a loss of words, and I just try to be present and love them, and I don't really know what to say or what to do. So Jesus, in this next section of verses here, is going to model for us, how do we do that? How do we handle those situations and come along people in those situations? And this section, things are about to get real. So let's check it out together. Verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, Martha, that we've talked about already, when she came to Jesus, she was ready for truth. She was just in a place where she's like pretty far along in the grieving process, and she just wanted to soak up wisdom from Jesus. But Mary, Jesus can tell, is in a different place. She's lost in her emotions. She is just weeping alongside of the people that were closest to her brother, to Lazarus. And she does something very similar, you might notice, to what Martha did. She starts to blame Jesus too. Jesus, why weren't you here you could have saved him. And now if I were Jesus and everyone just keeps blaming me, Martha, my friend, Mary, my friend, blames me. All these Jews that are here in verse 37 are like, if you can heal a blind man, why couldn't you be here to heal Lazarus? So he's just getting it piled on. But Jesus doesn't respond in frustration. He's very calculated, very observant in how he responds. And I think we learn something really powerful about who he is when we look at what he did here. If we move into verse 33, John says a couple things here that are interesting. He says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So for me, when I've read this verse in the past, I've just kind of glanced over it. Okay, so Jesus was deeply moved. And in my head, I thought, well, he was, he was touched, right? He was compassionate. He was empathizing in the moment. But it's really interesting when we look at the Greek words here. It says something much deeper about what's going on inside of Jesus' head. Here's what it says. So some passages will use words like upset or disturbed instead of troubled or deeply moved. But the closest understanding of this phrase, it's really interesting. It says it's to snort like an angry horse. That's what the root word means here. And I'm sure we've all seen some Western movie or some movie where there's this wild horse and it just bucks off at this cowboy and it's just going nuts. And you don't want to get anything near that horse. Somehow... That's a little taste of what was going on inside of Jesus' heart. And why is that? Why was he so fired up? It's because he hates death. He hates the pain that it causes the people that he loves. He hates that the sins of humanity have led us to all have to endure it. He hates it. 
And he wants to fight for us. He wants to fight for our hearts. He does not want us to get stuck in the pain and the fear that can come with death. He literally is ready to go to battle for Lazarus. He's ready to go to battle for us to conquer death for the first time and eventually for the last time when he dies on the cross for us and rises again through the resurrection. He literally came to earth to destroy death's grip on our lives so we wouldn't have to fear any longer. And then in verse 34, he's like, where is Lazarus? Where have you laid him? And to me, it's kind of like this warrior that is like, where is the battlefield? Let's go. But then verse 35 happens. It's really interesting to understand the contrast that's going on here. Verse 35 is the shortest English version, or verse, I should say, in the Bible. It's two powerful words. This is everybody's favorite Bible memory verse right here. (laughs) Everybody's. And it says, Jesus wept. Two simple but profound words that remind us of who we really love and who we really worship. Jesus is ready to go to battle. He's ready to conquer death. He's snorting. He's fired up over here. But then he pauses because he sees the pain and the suffering of his friends and of these people that are mourning the loss of Lazarus. And, you know, the word here for wept isn't, I kind of imagine as we're thinking about Jesus in like this warrior-like context, I kind of imagine it's like that single tear that you see coming down this guy and then he wipes it off and it makes him look even tougher and he's about ready to go into war. It is not like that. I mean, this literally, the root word for wept here is like wail. I mean, Jesus literally in public was ugly crying over Lazarus. I mean, this is just weeping and tears pouring out and just raw emotion that I would imagine no one expected to see from Jesus. It was so powerful that even the Jews that were just kind of observing what's going on here said, man, look how much he must have really loved Lazarus. So why did Jesus wept? What what does this show us about who he is? I think it's really interesting to ask this question. Jesus knows that in moments, he can pretty much flip his fingers and in three words, he can raise Lazarus from the dead. But he chooses to pause so that he can mourn and weep with his friends. Why did he do that? I think there's probably a lot of answers here. I don't know that I have the right one figured out, but here's what I think. I think that Jesus feels our pain. He wants us to know that whenever we're hurting, whenever we're crying, whenever we're overwhelmed, he knows our thoughts, he knows our heart, he knows our pain. He somehow is fully God and fully man in this moment. What we're seeing, this human side, where he's showing us that grieving is important. Part of healing after we lose people is to cry and to let these emotions out and to do it around other people in community. He's acknowledging that's okay. He's also, I imagine, just sitting there as he's weeping, he's just thinking about the pain of humanity, the sins of humanity. He's about to take on himself on that cross. And he is fired up to take down death. That's what he's weeping about. And I think it reminds us that Jesus is fierce and powerful, but he's also tender and loving. He's a tender warrior. And it's pretty amazing when we think about that is who we worship. 
He's someone that no matter what we've been through, somehow he's been through something harder. He's lost people he loves. He has died one of the most painful deaths known to man. He is in the trenches with us in the midst of whatever hard things come our way. And he did this because from the beginning of the world, he was with God and he knows the devastation of sin. He knows the devastation of death. He sees the effect it has on creation and his people. And he loves us so much that he wants to take away our pain. Okay, at this point, I'm sure most of the dudes out there, you're like, all right, we've dealt with a lot of emotion. There's been a lot of drama. You promised us some action. Where is it? All right, guys, here it is. It's coming up, right? Verse 38, this is the climax. This is what everything's building up to. And it's amazing what happens in these next few verses. So let's dig in. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead men, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. This is a powerful scene right here. You've got this cave, this tomb, where there's a stone rolled in front of it. Does it sound familiar? It's kind of resurrection-like, huh? And this is the first battle against death that we will see come to a climax with the resurrection. And Jesus is doing some really cool things in this moment. I think it's easy to lose the power of this situation. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we're so used to hearing stories that we forget that this kind of stuff really happened. This isn't a story, guys. This is history of what's happening here. So what I wanna ask you to do is as we unpack these last few verses, let's do our best to put ourselves in the shoes of someone that was there at that tomb. Let's try to feel and taste and see and smell to the best of our ability what happened. I guarantee you the people that were there never forgot what they saw. So it starts at the beginning here with Mary. And Mary, as Jesus is kind of asking for that stone to be rolled out so they can get into the tomb, she's, she's kind of, again, caught up and stuck in her emotions. So her instinct is probably to kind of control the situation. So she's like, Jesus, you don't want to roll away that stone. It is stinky in there. I mean, it reeks. I mean, she is reminding us that Lazarus has been dead for four days. All right, he is not just like chilling and catching up on his sleep and having like this spa in a cave kind of moment here. I mean, he is dead. And the results of death is his body has started the process of decay, started to decompose. And there are things that happen when that happens. And obviously Jesus knows this, but Mary's response in the moment is, oh, I don't know what's going on here. We shouldn't do this. Because she's not getting the bigger picture yet. Like we talked about, when we're stuck in our blame, when we're stuck in our grief, we miss what God's doing most of the time. So Jesus pushes forward, they remove the stone, and he reminds us of something very important that he's already shared with Mary and Martha. And he reminds them of this, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. 
That's what we're about to see here. And he's like, man, come on, Mary, stick with me. Don't stop believing. Martha, don't stop believing. I mean, Journey literally based their song on this moment. It's like, don't stop believing, people. Hang in there. Something real is about to happen. We're about to see God's glory in a way that you've never seen it before. This was unique in the Bible. We see Jesus resurrected after this. No one had been resurrected at that point. God's glory is about to be seen in an unbelievable way. And then Jesus begins to speak to the Father. He prays. His prayer is really interesting. Think about what he's praying here. He's basically saying, all right, God, you hear us when we pray. You hear us when we're hurting. And he's basically just reminding the people there, you sent me. He's showing his special connection with the Father that he somehow is fully God, fully man. He's not just a good guy with some special powers. He's not an illusionist. He is God in human form. I think people there needed to hear it. We need to hear it today. So prayer was important in this moment. And then Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And I love the language. I love that it says cried out because I think for some of us, when we like see these moments, we've seen so many movies that when he's crying out here, it's like we imagine like James Earl Jones meets Gandalf and it's like, Lazarus, you can pass, come on out, you know, but it's not. He's crying out. There is so much passion and emotion, and he is just so excited to see his friend Lazarus come out of this tomb that he cries out, Lazarus, come out. And everyone there knows his passion and his love in that moment. And then Lazarus walks out. A person that has been dead for four days walked out of this tomb. Now, again, let's put ourselves in that moment. What would you do if you saw the walking dead happen in front of you? Historically, this happened 2,000 years ago. Before a zombie movie was ever made, we see a dead body come out of this tomb. I don't know about you, but I would have probably screamed louder than a teenage girl at a Bieber concert, and I would have headed for the hills, man. I would have gone to higher ground because I would have freaked out. A dead body came to life, and it was rough. I mean, it was, he was stinking. He needed a shower, and he walked out of there, and people were flipping out. Their minds were blown. This isn't just a story. This is history. And what's even more unbelievable to me than that Jesus resurrected someone that was dead is that that someone was just an average person, just like you and me. It wasn't some king. It wasn't some uh, amazing religious leader. It was his buddy, Lazarus, just an average guy. And think about if he can take an average person and bring them back to life from the dead, what can he transform and revive in your life? If we can figure out a way to get over the pain, the worry, the fear of death, it is unbelievable what God can accomplish in our lives. So why? Why did Jesus do this? A few reasons. First of all, as he says, it was to show God's glory, which I think in some ways is to show us God's power, what he's capable of, what he can do in our lives and in our deaths. He did it as we talked about to conquer death. In this moment, he shows us that we can be set free from death if we believe him, if we follow him. 
God doesn't want us to be afraid. He doesn't want us to be worried. He doesn't want us to be stuck when we think about death. It's understandable anyone else without Christ would be worried, would be scared to death because they don't know what's gonna happen. But if you follow and believe in Christ, you don't need to be. You've been set free. And last of all, he, as he already said in verse 25, is the resurrection and the life. Remember this verse, everyone who lives and believes in Jesus shall never die. And he asked Mary, do you believe this? So today I wanna ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe that if you're a follower of Christ, that he truly has set you free from death? And not only that, but that he wants to model for you what it means to be fully alive, how to really live life to the fullest. If Jesus can raise an average guy from the dead, then he can do unbelievable things in our life. I think if we're honest, we all feel like some aspect of our life kind of stinks, just like Lazarus did. We may not be physically dead yet, but we aren't fully alive in the way that Christ desires for us. So I want you to listen and remember this phrase. When death no longer grips us, God can unwrap our life's potential. So when death no longer grips us, when we're not afraid, when we're not worried, when we're not lost in the midst of our pain and suffering and loss, when death no longer grips us, God can unwrap our life's potential. So I wanna spend just a quick couple of minutes with you, giving you three ways. Okay, so we know if we follow Christ, we're set free from death. But how do we lean into what God's best is for us to live fully alive? There's three things I think from this passage that we can take. First of all, we have to face our pain and own that part of our story. This is huge. I think for most of us, when we go through really hard things, it is very human, very natural for us to just try to bury it deep in our hearts and our souls, somewhere back in the depths of our brain where we hope we'll never experience it again. But the reality is it's gonna pop back up. And it's probably gonna be even harder the next time that it does because it's gonna keep piling up with everything else we go through. So we've gotta own that we all have pain. We all have suffering. Things are hard. Life's hard. We've gotta own that and, and just try to figure out a way to give it to Christ. Because when we own that part of our story, he as our Lord and Savior can take it from us. He longs for us to just fall at his feet and lay down our pain. He wants to take it away from us. He wants to help us through it. The second thing we need to do is pray. We saw in this passage the importance of him praying before what was about to happen, inviting God in. And for us, we don't really have the power that Jesus had. So we need to invite God in to help us see him do amazing things. But there's a second part of this type of prayer. We need to pray, but we also need to pray and believe that God is big enough to overcome our wounds, our pain. We've got to believe it. In this passage, we see that upon belief, people experience the glory of God. And that's what we want to experience in our lives. We want God to reveal his light, his hope, his glory through us. So we've got to pray and we've got to believe that God's big enough to do amazing things, even in the midst of our hard stuff. And then last but not least, we have to accept that we need others to help us overcome that pain, to overcome those struggles and unwrap our potential. I love how this passage ends. You see Lazarus, just this amazing miracle, he walks out 
but he's covered. He's got these cloths and linen strips over him. He's blinded. He's bound so he can hardly move. And Jesus says, hey, go unbind him. And I think it's this powerful reminder of how we need to rely on other people. Our pride says, I can handle it on my own, but we need each other more than we want to admit. And in this passage, we see Lazarus, who's literally blinded to what's in front of him. And as they peel back this cloth and these layers, he can see. He's not stuck in that pain, in that blame, in that suffering anymore. He's free to see what God has for him. And in the same way, we need our small group, we need our community to come in and help us, pray for us, journey with us, hold our hand, walk us through to what's best. And we need God, but we also need others. He's designed us for that. So how can you lean into your community to overcome what you're going through? When death no longer grips us, God can unwrap our life's potential. And we've got to remember, Jesus started the battle against death on this day with Lazarus, but then he finished it on that cross. We took on our blame, our pain, our shame, our sins, our struggles, where he took a symbol of destruction, a symbol of execution, a symbol of suffering, and he turned it into hope. And that's exactly what he wants to do with us. Let's pray. God, your word is powerful. And we thank you this morning just for this incredible story, God, of how you can raise the dead. And it's not just a story, God, we know it's real. So this morning, God, I ask you to come into our hearts, God, stir something up within us. Help us to figure out what pain, loss, suffering is stuck within us. How can you raise that? Help us to come out of that tomb and trust you enough to overcome our struggles, God. Help us to come to you when things get hard and know somehow you're working in the background for our good. And God, help us to be the kind of people that lean on others, that don't try to do it alone, but lean on you, lean on the small group and community you have for us. And if we don't have that, God, would you show us how to find it? Would you help us to seek that out? God, lastly, I just pray for anyone here this morning that truly is afraid of death because they don't know you, God. Because just like Jesus asked Martha and Mary, do you believe, maybe you're not sure. But Jesus does not want you to fear any longer. He wants to stir your heart towards him. He wants you to find hope. He wants you to know that death can just be something pretty temporary before an eternity of greatness with him. So God, we lift all these things up to you, Lord, and just pray that you would bring incredible resurrection to the pain in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.